when I throw out questions, answer them, and we try to get as much out of this. Philippians is awesome. A lot of you go Philippians, but it's still awesome. You know, it's awesome anytime you study it because there's just so many encouraging lessons in it and uh, very helpful to us. So before we start, uh, Jacob, would you lead us in prayer? Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you before this study. We ask that you please give us uh, all good listening skills. Uh, allow us to listen to things that Gary has prepared for us, to really pay good attention, and to really seek to gain something from the study. Uh, dear God, help us to retain the knowledge of Philippians and to um, use it in our everyday lives. And please, uh, with Gary, as he prepares to teach us this class, and uh, help him to say the things. Uh, that are directly from your word and are true, and also help him to present it in a way that we can all understand it. In your son's name, amen. amen. We want some background. We look back to chapter 16. What you see is that Paul, who always liked to do pioneering work in the gospel, had taken Silas. He started and revisited the churches of Galatia, where he and Barnabas planted the gospel on the first journey, and from there in Acts 16, he wanted to go to some other places to spread the gospel too. By verse 6, where did he want to go that the Holy Spirit forbade him? Asia. And where else did he want to go? Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit him? Bithynia. You know, it's got to be getting a little strange for Paul that he's wanting to go to these different places to preach the gospel and not saying no. Because you would think that would be something the Lord would want you to do. So he ends up, he had nowhere else to go, he just goes shoot straight across Asia over to Troas. Probably scratching his head wondering why God's not letting him go to these places to preach. And when he gets to Troas, he saw something that made him understand. Verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel of them. Made sense when he saw that vision. Oh, that's why God had a special place he wanted to go to Macedonia. Did you notice the pronoun shift there in Acts 16, verses 9 and 10? Some of you know this. What happened with the pronouns between 9 and 10? Switch from Yes! Went from third person to first person. When people are talking about he and them, now talking about we and us. So that means who joined them in Troas going to Macedonia? Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. If you're doing something with other people, you say we. If it's just them doing it, you say they. So Luke apparently joined Paul and Silas and Timothy, who Paul had picked up in Lystra, and went on into Macedonia. The first place they went to preach, verse 12, was Philippi, which was the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And the first place they went in Philippi was the riverside where there's some women gathered to pray. And you remember the woman who was a seller of purple whose heart the Lord opened and responded to the gospel? Lydia. She and her household were baptized and immediately she opened up her home to Paul and the others who were with him. And then Paul cast a demon out of that slave girl. This dovetails with what Craig was saying today in that depot. That uh, the masters of the slave girl, when he cast the demon out, 
He also expelled their book of profit off of this fortune-telling, demon-possessed girl, and they were angry about that, and they drugged them before the authorities, and what did the authorities do with Paul and Silas? Beat them with rocks, probably not a plus experience, and then put them in prison, in the inner prison in stocks. We're not sure whether the stocks were just for confinement purposes, or if they were also like stretching them for torture. At any rate, what were Paul and Silas doing about midnight? singing and and the prisoners were listening when God suddenly caused what happened? Yeah, this big earthquake of all things and it opens the doors of the prison and the jailkeeper assuming he would be responsible for the jailbreak, even though he didn't have a whole lot to do with that earthquake was about to kill himself when Paul said we're all still here, don't do yourself any harm and he asked what to really say Paul taught him and that same hour of the night which would be after midnight now he took him and the jailer and his family were baptized and that was the start of the church at Philippi presumably with Lydia and her household the slave girl I'm guessing the Philippian jailer in his household and Follow the pronouns carefully, Luke. Apparently, were the ones we know about that started that church in the first city of Macedonia, Paul preached in, which was Philippi. So that's the background of what we're going to be studying in Philippians. Do you have any questions or comments about that? Luke seems to have stayed there because the pronouns shift back to third person when they leave Philippi and move back to first person when he goes back through Macedonia in chapter 20. So I'm thinking Luke stayed there at Paul, until Paul went back through in chapter 20 and then rejoined Paul and his group. And then it doesn't seem like Luke No, nor Timothy. So maybe Paul and Silas were the leaders that they brought, or maybe they were the two that were connected with spelling that demon or whatever. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Okay, we're in Philippians chapter 1. Somebody read verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ Jesus, for all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and overseas in Jesus, grace to you, and 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 grace What are they? Servants. Yes, they're bondservants. They are the property of somebody else, and that somebody else is Jesus Christ. So they saw themselves as totally at Jesus' disposal. They were given to him to do whatever he wanted. They are writing to whom? The saints. What the saints? All the saints. You will notice he uses all a bunch in these first few verses. And I think he's got a reason for that. The only problem that I could detect in the Philippi church was disunity. And so he grouped them together, continued by saying, all the saints. Of course, the saint means they are what? Holy people. I can't hear too well with my age and the background noise. Yell at me. But uh, yeah, they're the holy people specially set apart to God. What what were these saints in? What were these saints in? Christ Jesus. They were in Christ Jesus. What else were they in? Philippi. You know, we all are. We're all in Christ and we're all in some place on the earth at the same time. 
That would be kind of complicated, living in two worlds at the same time, don't you think? And what we've got to make sure is that we're more in Christ than we are in Philippi or in Indiana or wherever it is we are. Because the atmosphere and the environment that we ought to live in primarily is Jesus. And he writes to them along with the overseers and deacons and wishes for them grace and peace from the Father and the Son. Any questions or comments on that just introduction as he starts his letter to Okay, three to eight. Thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you, all with the affection of Jesus Christ. What was Paul doing in verse 3? Thank God. Thanking God for? for? For them, as he remembers them. How often was he thanking God for them? Well, it's on so much. Always. Every prayer. Constantly thanking God for these Philippians. How much do you thank God for encouraging brethren? Why thank God for the Philippians? Why not thank them? Say that again. Yes, who opened their hearts? Yeah, but why thank the Lord for them? Because God brought them to Paul. Yeah, and God was causing them to grow and mature. He saw God's hand in their growth, in their conversion, and so he's glorifying God more than he's thanking them. Which is very interesting. He's constantly praying for them. That's amazing. And he especially remembers how they shared with him the gospel from the first day until now. We'll find out in chapter 4 that one of the things they've done is they started supporting him financially as soon as he left. And over and over again they sent to him. And we know from 2 Corinthians 8 that those Macedonian churches were especially poor. And yet the Philippians were constantly sending money to Paul to help him. Now, he doesn't care about the money. It's just showing how much they wanted to share with him and how much they were joined together and trying to help him and just encouraged him to see that in them. Well, I like verse 6. It talks about uh, he who began a good work in the Philippians. Now, who was it that began the good work in the Philippians? God, God, I thought it was Paul. Why would we say it was God? It was God, well, how did God have a role in this? He said that vision, he had never gone to Philippi and been to that vision more than likely. And besides that, what else did the Lord do to start the gospel there? Made the earthquake happen. 
wouldn't, wouldn't let him go other places to preach when he wanted to. Opened Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel and so forth. Paul saw this as the Lord starting the work in them. And what is he confident of in verse 6? They will remain perfect, but that God will do what? Yeah, the idea is God started a work in these brethren that he intends to finish. Now we should think about those of you who are Christians. God has started a work in you. What does God want to do with the work he starts? You know, it's like maybe uh, starting a painting. I'm not an artist, but some of you might be. You know, and if you started a really special painting, you're working on trying to complete it. And when you complete it, it's going to look really awesome. Now, if you're seeing a half-finished painting, it doesn't always look that good. But, but the painter who's wise had this skillfully getting it to where once he completes it, it's going to be a masterpiece. That's exactly what God was doing in the Philippians. He had started a work that he had every intention of finishing. And he, he perfects it until the day of Christ Jesus. When Jesus comes back, God will have finished his masterpiece that he's working in our heart and life. I'll tell you what, you don't want to do anything to mess that up. You want to cooperate with God on that so that he really gets to complete what he intends to complete life. It's really cool to think that God is doing that in our lives. And he's really got a purpose. And he's trying to follow through on in us. Comments and questions about that. Well, Paul, look at how he feels about it. You know, where, in verse 7, where does Paul have the Philippians? You ever uh, heard anybody say, you're on my nerves? Well, the Philippians are in his heart. That's all better than being on his nerves. You know, he really loved them. He cared about them. In fact, in verse 8, he swears to God that he loves them with what? With the very heart of Christ. He has the love of Christ in his heart towards them. He really cared about them a lot. It's just so cool how much and how intensely Paul loved his brothers and sisters. Even when, as he writes Philippians, he's probably in Roman prison. You know, a continent away from them, hadn't seen them in years. But he still loves them with everything that's inside of him. He loves them with the very heart of Christ. That challenged him to love somebody as Jesus loved them. Wow. That's saying a lot. And he is calling God as his witness that he does that. So he's not exaggerating. Comments and thoughts about the first eight verses. Okay, 9 to 11. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may improve with the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Okay, this is what he prays for them. And basically he prays for what? 
Pray for what, basically? Yeah, the first thing he prays, the basic thing he prays, their love would keep growing more and more. Can you ever get enough of that? You always need more. So he prays that God would cause their love to keep abounding, but he wants the love directed properly. So he wants the love channeled by what? Knowledge and discernment. If you don't have that, have you ever seen anybody who was just super indulgent and tolerant in their love? They loved everybody so much they couldn't tell anybody they were doing wrong. They just gave them anything they wanted to make them feel good. He doesn't want that kind of love. He wants a discerning, knowledgeable love that really helps people, not just gives them what they want. Without knowledge, love could do more harm than good to somebody. That's the kind of love he wants to have. So that they'll approve the right thing, distinguish what's right, and so that they'll be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Notice how often Paul talks about the day of Christ. He's always thinking about things in light of the judgment day. That was always on his mind. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's really the goal of everything we do is to glorify and praise God. So, before Paul talks to these brethren about some important matters he's been talking about, and asking God to bless comments or questions? All right, we come to the real theme, I think, of, of a lot of Philippians, and the part I want us to really focus on today, and you're going to try to take home, is these next couple of sections, really powerful sections to me, that really show you a lot about Paul's heart and his character. 12 to 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and in the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and robbery, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, Paul's circumstances were being imprisoned. Now, there are a lot of things that aren't great about being in prison, although it seems like Paul in Rome was under house arrest, so maybe he wasn't like any common prison. That would have alleviated some of those things. But I'll tell you one thing that is really a bummer about being in prison. What's that? You can't go to a place. And think about Paul. Did he ever like to travel? Yeah, he really liked sightseeing, didn't he? No. Why do you want to travel so much? He loved pioneering work in the gospel. He loved spreading the gospel places where Christ had never been heard. And there's another thing Paul traveled because he liked to do it. What was that? Yeah, trying to build up and strengthen those uh, people that he taught and brought to the Lord. That nurturing, watering work was also a passion for Paul. And if you look at Paul 
And in you know those years of his life before he got locked up in Acts 41, he went everywhere. That man was on the road. I don't know how much. I mean, you know, you think about even some of what he said, like in Second Corinthians three, in Second Corinthians eleven, he said he'd already been shipwrecked three times, and that was before the shipwreck we found out about in Acts 27. That would make at least number four. Now, to be out of the sea enough that you get shipwrecked four times and survive it is kind of amazing. Because he said one of those times he spent like a night and a day, you know, waiting for somebody to pick him up after the shipwreck. You know, but, but that means he's traveled a ton. He does. And then he goes everywhere all the time. So what would it mean to get in prison for him? Can't go anywhere. Can't go anywhere. Can you imagine how that just stifles him? You know, and, and I think if that had been me, I would have gotten my head and said, oh, I told you, you want to, I need to travel, get me out of here. And a week goes by, two weeks go by, Lord, come on, we're wasting time. You know, I've got all these brethren to revisit, I've got all this, these places I want to go. In fact, we know from Romans, what was the next territory Paul was hoping to pioneer? Yeah, he had his sights on going to Spain, getting that gospel way farther west than what we know about going so far. Paul just always wanted to do that kind of stuff. And so it's like a month now, two months now, and Lord, what are you doing? You know, I mean, it been one thing that Paul wanted to get out of prison so he could sightsee or so he could, you know, go and have fun, you know, music parks or, you know, I don't know. It was anything that was just kind of, you know, this world-like. Well, okay. But he wanted to go and do things for the Lord. His passion was to advance the gospel. And here he is locked up year, two years, three years, four years. <laughs> just keeps dragging on. Look at the way he said in verse 11 and 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out, you won't believe this, for the greater progress of the gospel. <laughs> wow. You would never think Paul getting locked up would have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. But i tell you something that says about Paul. He looks at everything from God's perspective. Instead of feeling him sorry for himself, he looked to see God's purpose behind what happened. And when he looked at it, he was like, you know the gospel has been spread more because I got locked up. And you say, well, how in the world did that happen? Well, he tells us three ways. It's kind of amazing. But in verse 13, what's one of the things that Paul's imprisonment has caused to happen? Yeah, the people who were guarding him get taught. Now, I hope none of you have parents or prison guards. If you do, I'm sure they're wonderful. But I spent a lot of time in prison, visiting, right? But my general impression of prison guards is that most of them would probably not come and want to hear me preach. You know? But can you imagine how Paul looked at it? Generally, they guarded the prisoner by chaining the jail, you know, a jailkeeper or guard to him. It's like six hour shifts or what? Well, when Paul gets prison guards chained to him, guess what? 
Yeah! He's got a captive audience. <laughs> you know, they can talk to them nonstop because they can't go anywhere. They got to stay with him for six hours. And can't you imagine Paul taking advantage of that opportunity? In fact, can you imagine Paul not speaking about the Lord to somebody who's around hour after hour? That's mostly what Paul thought about and talked about. It is so cool when we take every kind of situation and we turn it into an opportunity to serve the Lord. Instead of thinking, well, I'm not going to care where I can serve the Lord now. You know, if you ever let me out of here, then I'll go back to work. Paul thought, hey, I'll work right here. <laughs> Here's the audience. Here's the people who need to hear it. Why not teach them? What are you in the hospital? Anybody in the hospital who ever needs to you know, what if you're in an isolated area where there's hardly any Christians? You know, I mean, they have not any prospects around here, so there's no lost people. As long as there's lost people, if people need to be taught, I don't care whether they listen or not, they need to be taught. God is glorified when they're taught, when the, when the gospel is announced. So that was one thing. Paul got to preach to some people who would never, ever have heard the gospel otherwise. He said it really caused the gospel to progress. And I got it pretty close to Caesar if you're teaching the palace guard. Comments and questions on that point? I think one of the great things about Paul is he was so passionate for God. And then even in a situation where he gets locked in jail, you can see God gave him the blessing of being able to put passion into writing. Because if you look at all his writings, they're, so, they're full of challenges that are tough, but it's full of love and passion for God's Word. So I think it's great, like you were saying, to make the most of our theme for the week, doing what he could, where he gets stuck in. That's a great, that's a great thing to see. Excellent. That's exactly right. You know, don't lament your circumstances. Serve the Lord in them, whatever they are. You can glorify God in any place, in any condition, if you'll serve I mean, he says in the next place something else that you never have thought about. But in verse 14, how did his circumstances make the gospel progress? When they saw Paul incarcerated, boldly proclaiming Christ, it spurred them on to preach for him. One of the greatest things about going through really hard circumstances is that it encourages other people more when they see you stay faithful in hard circumstances. What if the story of Job was, there was this man named Job that God really prospered and he lived a righteous life and he died. Do you think Job would have been as inspiring to you? No, because it's a great thing when a guy has a righteous life, God prospers and he dies. But it doesn't move us like Job, who had everything thrown at him, and he still didn't curse God and die. Wow, that's encouraging. Whenever you see somebody going through really hard circumstances, and they stay faithful to God, and stay zealous for him, that's verse one. You can glorify God more than hard circumstances. Remember that the next time it's tough. I don't understand why God's not doing anything about this. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. I don't understand. Well, maybe God's giving you a much greater opportunity to glorify Him and inspire your brethren than you've ever had to think of one brethren. Paul said, the other brethren had a lot more. 
courage and boldness. Now that they can see my example of boldness and courage in prison. That's a, that's a cool thing. It's, again, I love the way Paul looks at everything and just says, well, how does it affect the gospel? <laughs> Didn't make it over what how that would be. Comment the thoughts on this one. Well, there's another thing that happened that caused the gospel to progress, although this one's a little harder to just grasp what he's saying. But he says in verse 15 that some, to be sure, preaching Christ even from envy and strife. And he says these guys in 17 proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. I'm just going to tell you what I think that's saying. Here's what I think happened. Paul, as a prisoner, was sent to Rome. You got a question, Jay? Or just, okay. Uh, he was sent to Rome. And were there Christians in Rome before Paul got to his prison? Yeah. How do we know? When he got there, he got That's one thing. How else do we know? Yeah, remember all the list of people in Romans chapter 16 that were there? You know, and those are just the ones he happened to know in Rome. There are a lot of Christians in Rome before he got there. We know there were people from Rome on the day in Acts chapter 2. Some of them may have gone back and spread the gospel there, who knows what. So, um, but, but think about what changed when Paul got there. Now, before Paul arrived, when the brethren had questions, when they had a problem, there must have been a few people in the church of Rome that everybody kept in church because maybe they were wiser, or stronger, or more spiritual. And so, you know, there was the, the important brethren that got a lot of people turning to them, looking up to them, and meeting them. Can you imagine what happened when the apostle Paul got to Rome? Suddenly, you had a question. Who would you want to go to? Oh, go talk to the Apostle Paul. What if you had a problem? Who would you want to go to? I think we've got the Apostle Paul around the corner. And, and we know from Acts he could receive visitors. Right? So, so anybody could just come and sit down and talk with him. Well, what about these poor guys who used to be Mr. and Mrs. Important in Rome, and now suddenly everybody's flocking to Paul, and they're kind of like, nobody wants to. Nobody thinks they need me anymore. Well, what if some of those guys have been in the field? Jealous of him. Jealous of him. And so what did they do? Started preaching the gospel out of, out of selfishness. Yeah, they started trying out him. You know, they started thinking, well, you know, I can show him. I'll preach the gospel more than he does. I'll teach more people than he does. You know, I, 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 I'll convert more folks than he has. And, and so they start really, really being zealous and trying to do more in preaching the gospel. Now they do it for competitive reasons. Trying to out-preach Paul and out-influence him. Was that a good thing? No. It stinks to be competitive. We're all on the same team. We want the gospel spread more. You know, it's wonderful if our brethren are spreading it more. It'd be like being on the team and getting mad because the quarterback scored the touchdown. You're the running back. You wanted to score. Hey, if, if you have a team like that, they're not going to score off. <laughs> you know, you have to work together. A victory 
what Paul saw was they're getting the gospel spread more, and he's really thankful that the gospel is being spread more, even if their attitude was wrong. They thought it would make Paul jealous. They thought it would hurt Paul to see them spreading the gospel more. <laughs> Paul doesn't look at it that way. He wants the gospel spread more. He's not trying to make a name for himself, and he certainly doesn't. He's not in competition with anybody else for how much people can spread the gospel. The more anybody spreads it, the happier he is. Now, there's a lesson in that for us. And that is that the, it, the virtue is in the message, not the messenger. It doesn't make any difference who it is that spreads the message. You know, the message is so powerful, it'll teach people even if the heart of the messenger is corrupt. I'm certainly not saying we ought to have the wrong heart. But if the gospel itself, the pure gospel spread, it can even overcome the bad heart of the messenger to have a positive effect. So instead of them making Paul jealous and frustrated, they just contributed right to what Paul wanted, and that is the gospel to spread more. So in all three ways, the guard heard it, Good brethren were encouraged, and bad brethren got more competitive and tried to spread it more. But in all three of those ways, his being locked up led to the gospel being spread more. And Paul was thrilled to death. Didn't matter what happened to him, that the gospel was proclaimed. Comments and questions on all this? All right? Well, 19, oh, 1926. For I know that this shall return to my salvation through your prayer and, this, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ has been magnified in my body, whether it be my life or by my death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I want not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for all your furtherness and the joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to see you. Now, what Paul really thinks is that he'll be delivered through their prayers, verse 19, and through the Spirit. And this fits with Paul's real aim in verse 20, which is what? What's Paul's aim? To honor Yeah, for Christ to be exalted in his body. Does it matter to Paul whether Christ is exalted in his body by his living or by his dying? No. He just wants Christ exalted. Whatever it takes on his part. But what he really thinks is that Christ would be exalted more by his living and so that's what he thinks is going to happen. But for Paul, it really life and death is a matter of indifference since all he really cares about is the Lord. If the Lord is exalted, Paul's happy. That's his point in that, which is a very encouraging thing. And then you see Paul actually thinking about life and death and looking at it as a disciple would. Your life and death are things that are going to happen, you know, and all of us are sooner or later going to die if Jesus going to come back before then. 
Well, how does Paul look at life and death? If Paul lives, what does that mean? Yes, his life is Christ. Pretty much Jesus sums up Paul. That's what his life is all about. Well, what if he dies? What does that mean? He can be with Christ. He's with Christ. Actually, that's a game. <laughs> that's even better. We have no idea what it'd be like to go from this camp this afternoon to be with Jesus. Now, I think this camp is pretty cool. As far as things on the earth are concerned, things like this are really motivating, really encouraging. Don't you feel good being here? You know, I mean, most of us would probably a lot rather be here than what we were doing this time last week, right? You know, it's more exciting, more encouraging. But you take the very best thing here, being with the Lord, oh wow, you have a choice. Go now. You know, it's so much better. So much. Do you, do you believe that? What, if you could go to heaven just like that, would you want to? Yeah. If we think we wouldn't want to, we have a clue what happens like. You know, I mean, I know we haven't been there. Sometimes we haven't been somewhere it doesn't sound that great. But the Lord has been there and he never lied to us. It's, it's really great. And so, but, but I want you to think about this. It's only when you can say for me to live is Christ that you can say to die is gain. Because for you to live is something else. Let's say for you to live is money. Then what would die be? Bankruptcy, right? You know, if to you to live is fame and honor and status, what's dying? Probably like being forgotten and losing all that. And so, you know, if, if your life is anything but Christ dies, you know, dying for you of the but if, you're, if you can say for me to live is Christ, then you can say to die is gain. But now Paul's thinking about those two choices. He said, you know, really, you know, if I, if I, if I live in verse 22, what would that mean? Yes, if you were to live physically, what would that mean? Fruitful labor. In other words, he can preach more and encourage more and help more. He can be a blessing to the oblivious and to other people and try to help them glorify God. That's what living for him would be. More opportunity to serve. Well, you know, that really puts him in kind of a quandary when he thinks about those options. See, you know, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to part me with Christ. For that's very much better. This is 23, not 24. Yet to remain under the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So it's like, wow, if I had to choose, that's a hard choice. Because living means helping you more, and dying means being with Jesus. And so when Paul starts thinking, well, you know, which one would I choose if I could? Now it's really not a choice. But what if you could choose it? If you really could, that would be a good 
Would Paul? Would Paul? I agree with that. Why wouldn't he? Paul was really saying, yet to remain out of the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy the faith. I think what Paul saying is that given the choice, he would unselfishly place the needs of his brethren above his own That's an amazing thought. Now, it's not amazing to some of us because we sure would like to live and not die. But it's amazing for Paul, who would love to be with the Lord right then and there, but is willing to postpone that to be able to help the brethren more and spread the gospel more. Paul is thinking through these things with a disciple mindset. This is the kind of way we ought to think through these things. And this attitude of Paul's always wanting to serve and always wanting to glorify God, even if it hurt him. You remember what Paul said in Romans 9, that he would, if it would help, be cursed from God to save his brethren. Now he's willing to postpone being with Jesus to bless his brethren. Paul is so insulted. But whatever it takes. Now, obviously, to be cursed by God wouldn't help the brethren. That would hurt him. But whatever it would take, like delaying being with Christ, he'd do that. If that's what the Lord wanted, so that he could help the brethren more. So I'm just really impressed by that whole mindset Paul has. I think it's really inspiring for us to try to really get a feeling for that and come to identify with this commitment that everything's for the gospel. He started out this section saying, I really want you to know that this whole thing was for the greater progress of the gospel. That's the way it turned out. And he ends at 25 by saying, I'm convinced that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of the faith. So he starts with the, his circumstances leading to the progress of the gospel, and he ends with thinking about their progress and how him staying alive would help them in their progress. Comments and thoughts on that? One of the things with this whole idea of him wanting to stay on earth, it seems like he's practicing what he preached back in verse 6, talking about the work that was going to be completed in them. He understands that he has this great work that he's doing. He's touching so many lives, and it's hard for us to grasp because we have it so easy. But, I mean, you can read in the Corinthian books how hard he had it. And just wrapping your mind around wanting to just have it done. And he says, no, no, I can endure this because I have a work that I have to complete too. It's the same for each one of us. We have our works that God's going to work through us and we have to, we have to complete it. How do you see yourself compared to Paul? You're a lot like he is. that kind of a challenging standard? You know, wow. We really need a tool to 
In chapter 4, he's going to tell us about two women who evidently were not getting along. Christian women. But, but we also see other things that make it, the fact he keeps saying you can work together. You need to be one soul and one mind. And you just need to really be unselfish and put each other ahead of, of yourself and all that. All of you sorts about that makes us assume that they needed that. But they were having some friction was dry. Sometimes it's hard to be united together and love each other in Christ. There are some annoying people, thankfully not me, but there are some annoying people and who are Christians and it takes some work. So that's what we're going into. So when somebody read 27 Good. <laughs> Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, um, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to me. Okay, now when he says conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, the, the verb there, conduct yourself, really means to live as a citizen. He's saying, you be like a citizen of Christ's kingdom, and so you live in a way that's worthy and appropriate to the gospel. There's just a pattern of life. Okay, I, I wondered, I had no idea, so thank you. <laughs> Very good. Alright, so, so we need to live you know, in a worthy way that fits Christ's kingdom. And, and that's true whether Paul's there or not. Can you imagine maybe them straightening up more when Paul was there? What happens in your home when a respected guest is there? Do the uh, members of your family behave somewhat differently? <laughs> you know, isn't that the way that usually is in most all of our houses? Well, Paul said, I don't care whether I'm there or not. Here's how you need to live. You need to live fit for Christ. And what do you keep emphasizing in the last half of 27? How do they need to be? One mind and one. Yes, and one what else? Spirit. And they can be striving how? Together. Together. This is the teamwork. It's the comradeship. It's the pulling together. Everyone helping each other. You know, don't you love it? You know, every once in a while you can see, like, um, oh, say, I don't know, how many of you, some of you are probably, how many of you are kind of into college basketball? How many? I'll use this as an illustration. All of you understand. But, you know, in contrast, every once in a while, you see a team that aren't very good. They don't have a lot of talent, but they have a lot of heart. They really play together, and they really bond and encourage each other, and they really care about each other, and they like play way over their heads. Like they do things that by their talent level, there's no way. I'm thinking of like, year before this was Butler. By BCU also, but Butler, you know, really, you know, just the chemistry of the team was pretty incredible. The way they really played for each other and cared about each other. Well, we didn't have that kind of comradeship, that kind of, we're fighting the fight together, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm, 
cares about each other is with one spirit, one mind, one heart to advance the gospel. We've got these problems with strife and jealousy and things like that. And we overcome those things because we love the Lord together so much that we unite. And when we unite, it changes things. Then we don't have to worry about enemy attacks. Verse 28. Because we're working together with Christ and with each other. And we look at our sufferings and we look at them differently. You know, in verse 29, how does he see their sufferings? Not only for the sake of Christ, but you can say something even stronger. How does he view their sufferings in 29? As a gift of Christ. The Lord has generously blessed us with the opportunity to believe in him and to suffer for him. Now to believe in him, that is a generous gift. But would you have ever thought of suffering as being a fruit of God's blessing you? That's pretty radical. You know, to think about it. But that's the way we ought to think about it. What a privilege to be able to suffer for the cause of Christ. You remember the early Christians in Acts 5, they were beaten and threatened and told not to preach anymore, and they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's how we ought to look at that. That's the excitement we ought to have in, in serving the Lord. And, uh, you know, we then need to develop this idea as Christians, we are soldiers fighting a common enemy. And the soldiers close ranks and they really pull together and they care about each other and they help each other in that fight. It's a dangerous fight. There's a lot of casualties. The enemy's strong. So you fight the fight. totally with them and you rally around them to fight together in the cause of Christ. That's the picture he's giving. And that is the way we overcome the strife and division. Because we love each other with the heart of Christ and because we're fighting a common fight and we're all listening together and we're, we're comrades. That's the picture he's giving. It's a really encouraging picture that ought to inspire us to develop more of that Spirit. But team spirit sounds a little weak. You know, that's like a sport thing. This is a, a, a fellow soldier spirit where there's really a cause worth fighting. And that just takes a lot more love and a lot more closeness. And a lot. And what's, what is the one thing that draws us closest together to each other? Hardships. Now, what I'm thinking of, that's true. Our love for the Lord together. When we work together in the cause of Christ and we love the Lord together, it draws us to each other. And it helps us love each other, care about each other, serve each other, and all that. Comments and questions on chapter 1. One of the cool things in 27, he says that I may hear of you. It seems just right here that. The early church, when they talked about each other, it was often in a positive way. I know now when 
normally when I hear about somebody from a different congregation, it's, oh, did you hear the bad that brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so did? And I think one of the things that we should be doing is we should be bragging on our other brothers and sisters, trying to encourage other people. Because if Jacob does this good thing down in southern Indiana, I should spread that to people up in northwest Indiana because that is an encouragement to know there are people all around who are trying to do what's right. Instead of spreading the bad that other Christians are doing, bringing each other down, we need to be building each other up by what we're doing. How does it make you feel when you hear about a brother you haven't heard about in a while and you find out he's doing great? How do you feel? Does that encourage you? Does that spur you on? Is that, what you, there are probably some people you saw here since you got here that you hadn't talked to or heard about in a good while and you didn't know how they were doing. And they haven't found out about some of them that they're doing really well. How do you feel? It ought to make it feel that way. If we have that spirit and that love for each other, that's what Paul felt. Man, he wanted so bad to hear about He wanted to know that they were doing well because he loved them with the heart of Christ. So they meant a lot to him. That's the spirit. So much of this is just Paul showing us what the heart of a disciple is. This is how a disciple feels about things. This is the kind of love and, and concern that a disciple has for his brothers. Comments and thoughts, chapter. Where he's going in chapter two is to just pursue this. He's pursuing the idea that we ought to love each other more, and he's really.